And I would ask you to take your Bibles, and if you were in Acts chapter 6, stay there. We're going to spend some time there. This uh, past Monday, when I learned of the passing of retired four-star general, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, uh, I was saddened. I, uh, I reflected on what I knew of, of his history of leadership, and I think Colin Powell was a was a good leader. He was a, a leader who really didn't draw attention to himself. He was a leader who was actually willing to admit when he made a mistake. He was a leader who did not take all the credit to himself when uh, there were leadership successes, but he was quick to point out the hard work of his team that brought about those successes. Sometimes you learn about people when you listen to those who were opposite them. And I listened to a, an interview of one of his predecessors. Now, Colin Powell had the distinction of being the first African-American Secretary of State and the first African-American uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Madeleine Albright had the distinction of being the first female Secretary of State in the United States, and she was actually the uh, ambassador to the United Nations when he was Joint Chiefs of Staff. And although they found themselves at times on opposite sides of the issue or the aisle, Madeleine Albright said these things about Colin Powell. She first said he was a good friend. And then she said, uh, there were four things that she thought made him stand out as a leader. First of all, she said, he listened and he respected your view even when he disagreed with you. Secondly, she said, he knew where he came from and he never forgot it. Thirdly, she said, he worked to understand the people who were working for him. He worked to understand them and who they were. And fourthly, she said, he was a grateful American. I've been thinking a lot about leadership this week because we're going to be talking about leadership today. And so in that process, I ran across two articles. Interesting, again, articles from different sides of the, the spectrum. One was in Time Magazine, and it was under the title, A Truly Great Leader, The Ten Characteristics of a Truly Great Leader. One was from uh, a, a journal article from Regent University. Regent University is a Christian college in Virginia Beach, and it was 10 characteristics of a servant leader. I'm not going to go through all those characteristics, but I thought it was interesting. The, the first characteristic listed in the Regent article was a servant leader listens. The, the first characteristic in the uh, truly great leader is energy. A leader has energy, and they talked about um, Winston Churchill and how that he was like constantly working and all. The, the second top leadership in servant leaders is empathy. And the second top leadership quality in the truly great leader was ability to plan and adapt. And it just kept going back and forth that way. And it was interesting to, to see the differences. What I 
learned again is that leadership is important. But what I also observed is that the leadership of Jesus was that servant leadership. And that kind of leadership is modeled throughout Scripture in different ways. Today we're going to look, believe it or not, at our seventh principle. Our seventh timeless principle as we're going through this kind of survey of the book of Acts. And very simply stated, it's actually the title of the sermon. Sermon titles are one of the hardest things to come up with. It's the title of the sermon. We need to, if we're going to be a church that follows the principles set forth in the book of Acts, then we need to make sure we put the servant in servant leadership. So we're in Acts chapter 6 today. It's very possible that by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, close to five years have elapsed from the Holy Spirit coming on that day of Pentecost to what we have in Acts chapter 6. And something we can never forget as we work our way through this book of Acts, something that we can never forget is the fact that in anything that God does, there is our enemy, the devil, our enemy Satan, who always tries to disrupt God's work. We, we, saw, we can see that all the way back from in the beginning in Genesis 3. Satan tries to disrupt God's work in every way he can. He knows he's a defeated enemy. He knows that his time is short, but he tries to mess things up as much as he can. And one of the ways that Satan works and I'm actually starting to do a very personal study on this. One day maybe you'll see the fruits of that study. Satan works by influencing our minds. He can't read our minds, but he can influence our minds with thoughts and ideas and ways that, and prejudices that divide because what he wants to do is destroy the unity that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. And we see that in this these few verses here in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, it says, verse 1, as we've had read for us, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In God's divine wisdom, He set up a system for caring for the poor that was built into the law that was given by Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26 and verse 12, Moses said that every third year, all the people were to bring a tithe of all their crops to be given to the Levites in their community. Now keep that in mind. When we use the word tithe, we think just 10%. This was a tithe of all their crops. So if you had grapes, 10% of your grapes. If you had barley, 10% of your barley. If you had wheat, 10% of your wheat. 10% uh, of all your crops, everything was to be brought to the Levites, and then they were to distribute those to the most vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. And so it was a way to help those who were poor so that no one in God's nation went without. Now let me put that in perspective real quick. In your Bibles in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, 
there's a guy that comes up and talks to them. His name is Simeon. But after that is Anna. And the Bible says that Anna was married for seven years and then was widowed and spent the next 70 years in the temple courts. And you ask yourself, how did she survive 70 years? She had no income, no job. There were no jobs available for women. It's the following of the law of Moses is how she spent those 77 years at the temple courts. She was most likely survived because of those offerings that came to the Levites that were distributed. God put a system in place through Moses that was probably still in some ways intact when we get here to the first century. But we have a situation in the book of Acts. Remember, there's this situation in which the, the apostles have been preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, and they've been told repeatedly not to preach it. We're going to be moving into a time of persecution, but there was already early persecution. Peter and John, remember, were taken and told, don't do this anymore. So there was, there was, some, there was some opposition. So what about those widows? Those widows that would reside in the temple court or come to the temple court, and now they weren't following the Pharisaical rules because they believed in Jesus. How were they going to get taken care of? And you know, we talked already about generosity. When people sold fields and when they brought the money to the apostles' feet, that, that money was probably put into a treasury and they were able to purchase and distribute food to widows. And this had been going on for maybe five years. We're known, we're told repeatedly throughout these first few chapters of Acts that the group continued to grow. Now, while growth in spiritual movements, while growth in church, numerical growth is good, it always brings with it a new set of problems, a new set of challenges. How do we meet the needs of the people God's bringing our way? How do we set up systems and structures that allow us to minister to everyone most effectively? How do we protect against some feeling invisible or marginalized? And something started to happen here in Acts chapter 6. A problem arose. A problem that could have given Satan a big win. A great big win. You see... To divide this group and create factions early on would have been delightful from a satanic view of destruction. It would have been delightful to divide them, to have them divided racially, to have them divided economically, and just all of a sudden we don't have a group, we've got an argument. Luke simply says, the Hellenistic Jews complained that the Hebraic Jews, against the Hebraic Jews, that their Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, I need to take a little bit more time and help you understand these two groups. Um, now, some of your translations may say something like the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews, but there was more at play than language here. The word Hellenistic is a word that uh, has its roots in the idea of speaking or identifying with the Greeks. When Alexander the Great 
began to go throughout the world and conquer the world, he wanted to spread the idea of Hellenism. It was a, the Greek ideal. Hellenism, more than a language, it was the culture, it was the customs, it was the mindset, the philosophies of the Greek ideal. And Hellenistic Jews were most likely Jewish people who had been in other places throughout the Mediterranean world and had in one way or another resettled into uh, Jerusalem. They were still Jews. They hadn't abandoned their faith, but they were different. And see, this, this idea of Jews being throughout the Mediterranean area really has its roots all the way back in the Old Testament. In 733 BC, the Assyrians took over the northern part of Israel. And what the Assyrians typically did is they took people and they moved them completely out of their place of service, out away from their place of living, and they moved them into other places and they repopulated. And they did that to control people. The Babylonians come along some 200 years later, almost 200, 597 B.C. They carried a bunch of Jews captive, and some of them stayed in Babylon. They stayed in that area when the nation came back. When you move to another area, when you relocate to another area, you begin to take on, just very naturally, the thoughts and the customs. When I was six years old, my family moved from West Virginia to Kansas. My first grade classmates in Kansas thought I needed speech therapy because I talked funny. Now, when we went back to West Virginia for a vacation that summer, my uncles and aunts went to my mom and dad and they said, what did you do with your kids? They talk like Yankees. Because we had started to lose our accent. We started to learn, you know what, in Kansas, I, I remember the best job I had. I was working for a construction crew and they loaned me out to some surveyors. And I went out and helped do some surveys. You know what I loved about the survey guys? They had Swedish backgrounds. And you know what their job, what they did as a custom at 10 o'clock and at 3 o'clock? We went to the coffee shop and we had coffee and donuts because that's what you do. It was great. So you can imagine these Jews that are spread out throughout the world develop some of the customs, the habits, the mannerisms of the places where they lived. And now for some reason they've resettled in Jerusalem and they've come into faith of Christ. And there's some widows that, have, have, that this has happened to and... and it's very natural, isn't it? If you're a Jewish person and you're in charge of giving out the food, you're going to be naturally drawn to the people that you're used to. And so there was inequity in the distribution of food. And the Hellenistic, the, the, the ones that had that Greek background were saying, hey, wait a minute, we're kind of getting overlooked. We're kind of getting the short end of the straw. An explosion was looming if something wasn't done. This comes to the 12. And verse 2 says they gathered all the disciples together. Now, I don't think they gathered all 5,000 plus. I believe they gathered a representation. 
Luke doesn't tell us how long this had been going on. What we learn is when the apostles learned about it, they addressed it. And that tells me something about a servant leader. Servant leaders identify and deal with challenges to unity. Servant leaders identify and deal with challenges to unity. See, recently I read something that's really interesting, and the individual said, when we read through the Bible, it's important to pay attention to what is said, but also sometimes give careful thought to what is not said. What we don't have said here is the apostles taking time to hear all the arguments and the complaints. What we don't have said here is that they spent time listening to excuses or taking surveys or, or anything because they already identified the greater issue. The core issue here was, was not that widows were feeling marginalized, although that's important. The core issue was the potential disruption of the unity of the body, and they deal with it. Now, listen to what they said. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Here's the second thing about servant leaders. Servant leaders focus on what God has gifted them to do. In a book uh, written several years ago called A Passion for Souls, The Life of Dwight Lyman Moody, historian and professor Dr. Lyle Dorsett made a very keen observation about Mr. Moody. He said that, this, that when this happened in Moody's life, it was both a liberation and a guidance. At one point in time, Mr. Moody was asked by a very wealthy benefactor to leave Chicago and relocate everything, all his ministry, to New York City. And that was a great challenge to him. It looked good. New York City, there's opportunity. We'll fund everything. It'll be great. But Moody had learned some experiences as he had moved along. And, and Dorset wrote this, Moody's recent experience with the Holy Spirit set him free free from the mania that sees every great need as a personal call. Every need could not be a call. You see, for any leadership position that you may ever find yourself in, you need to learn not only to be patient, but learn the freeing power of the word no. My wife says, and I know she, I, I don't think it's original with her. If it is, we're going to coin the expression uh, and, and copyright it and trademark it. And, but she says, no is a complete sentence and it needs no explanation. Trust me, saying no is hard. Sometimes it feels like you're bailing out. But the fact is, when we focus on what God has truly set before us, when we focus on the ability He has given us and the calling that He's given us in our life, we can be more focused and free to say no to one thing because we're focused on what God has. The apostles already had their assignment from Jesus. 
you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. This is what you're to do. They had their orders. Their task was to keep doing what they had been told to do. They were responsible for the ministry of prayer and the word of God. It's not that the ministry of widows was unimportant. It's, it's not that the unity of this movement was not important. It's simply that their God-given task was to keep praying, teaching, and ministering the Word of God. They stayed focused on what God wanted them to do. So they came up with a leadership solution. Remember, service, servant leaders focus on what God has gifted them to do. What was their solution? Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. The way that sentence, that first part of that sentence reads, you know, it's not right to, be, to neglect the ministry of the Word in order to wait on tables. The way that reads is you're going, oh, so they saw this as just a menial task. They didn't think this was really important. It's not at all. They wanted it to be important for others, too. You see, a leadership solution brings others into the mix. Servant leaders empower others to excel for God. We're going to see in a minute how that the apostles actually saw this as a highly spiritual ministry. Here's their solution. We're going to empower others. We want you to appoint seven men to manage this issue. Seven who will use their skills to manage this issue. And we'll use our skills to keep praying and ministering to the Word. And together we can move forward effectively. But note carefully this brief description of the seven. Seven choose from among you. Seven who are to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Seven men full of the Spirit and wisdom. That's another point for us to remember. Servant leaders delegate to other servant leaders who are spiritually mature. These seven were first. The first thing they were to be known of was they were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This wasn't a new discovery in these guys. This is more accurately, this is how they're already living their lives. This is how they're already living out the truth of the Word of God. They're already, you already know who they are. You, when you think of seven people that are doing this, the people of Israel, you know who they are. We would say it was their reputation. Their reputation was to people that were full of the Spirit and wisdom. We would say this was their character qualities this was their who they were and, and you know when i read that as i thought about that as i reflected on that i asked myself a question what does my life reflect to others i was in a, a meeting this last week that's those of us that were at the meeting are going to be facilitating discussion this next week in the community and i had a name badge there Right there, my name, Scott Howington. And underneath it went, Pleasant Hill Community Church Pastor. 
I couldn't hide. I couldn't say, well, that's, they, they really got that wrong. I'm actually a landscape architect. Uh, no, that's right there in front of everybody. I had to make sure that what I reflected was something that reflected honestly about this church, but more and more about this church, more about Christ. What do people see in me? Ask yourself that. Do people truly see, do, they, do people see a true picture of Jesus in me? The old adage is, you may be the first Bible someone else reads. So they were full of the Spirit. They were also full of wisdom. Wisdom, when used in the Bible, means that it encompasses knowledge and the skill to apply that knowledge. Wisdom reflects the choices one makes that coincide with the righteousness of God. Wisdom reflects moral living. These people would look at the situation in front of them and they wouldn't just make snap judgments. They would observe, they would see what's going on and then they were going to make decisions that were going to be fair and equitable for everybody. They were full of, they were replete with, it was it was just over, bubbling over in them, the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And so these people were chosen. I noticed how wise you were, Bill, to make sure you divided up the Scriptures so Leela got to read the names. That, that was a good move. Good move. Um, but those names, you know, I used to, I, I, for the longest time, I thought, well, those names are just kind of Luke being detailed. He was a medical doctor, so he's being detailed. But actually, they're pretty significant. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come back to him in just a second. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who converted to Judaism. Here's something unique about those names. They're all Hellenistic names. They're all Greek names all the guys who were chosen had a greek background this was truly a multicultural church so who would best know the needs of the hellenistic jewish widows but a bunch of guys who had a hellenistic background but because they were men full of the spirit and full of wisdom who would best seek to learn and represent fairly the Hebraic widows, guys that knew God, that were replete, that were full of the Holy Spirit. And so these were the guys that they chose. Now I want to skip for a minute, chapter six, or verse 6, I want to jump down to verse 7. So notice what happened. These guys took over the responsibility. They made sure the widows were taken care of. They made sure food was equally distributed. And look what happened. What was the result? It wasn't the result that they made Volunteer of the Year. They didn't get the Walter Payton Award. You know, they, 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 here's the result. This is what Luke wants us to see. This is what God wants us to see. So the Word of God spread. 
because they focused on the unity of the body, because there were servant leader decisions made to take care of all of the widows equitably and fairly, it opened the door for the word of God to spread. Division had been averted. A faction had been brought back together. Let me remind you today, sometimes we in the church can be the greatest obstacle to the spread of the Word of God. You see, when we allow things to divide us that are biblically and spiritually inconsequential, we end up investing time and energy in those issues and we hinder the spread of the Word of God. When we make our rules, our traditions, our opinions out to be the hills that we're ready to die on, we invest in proving how right we are and we hinder the spread of the word of God. Our mindset should always be to get ourselves out of God's way, let him lead and we join him. But I skipped verse six. I'm going to go back to verse 6. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. What are these men to do? Take care of distributing food. You see, servant leaders see every task as a spiritual task. These guys are, they're, well, you heard it, they're waiting on tables. They're distributing food. So what do the apostles do? They do what we did a few weeks ago. You know, we brought a couple, some, a missionary family up here a few weeks ago. They were headed back to Africa. We, we laid, those of us on the stage here laid hands on them. You reached out your hands as a, as a way of putting your hand on them too. And, and we sent them out with God's blessing. Last week, we gathered outside with another family. We laid hands on them. We sent them out with God's blessing. That idea of laying hands on someone goes all the way, is just all throughout the Bible. It's a symbol of approval. It's a symbol of blessing. It's a symbol of delegated authority. It's a symbol of walking with them. They took these seven guys, these seven waiters, right? Hi, I'm Stephen. I'm your server. I'll be taking care of you today. You know, these seven servers, they took them and they laid hands on them and they said, this is a spiritual task that we are doing. They dedicated the ministry of handing out food to widows as a spiritual ministry. This is not in your notes. This is a freebie. In fact, this is one of those things, if you don't hear me say anything else today, would you remember just this? There is nothing you and I do for God that is not an important spiritual task. Now, note how I said that. It's not there's nothing you and I do. There's nothing you and I do for God. Anything you do for God is an important spiritual task. I try, I don't always do it, but I try often to call everything that happens in this realm that we call Pleasant Hill Community Church a ministry. You're not just running the soundboard. That is a sound reinforcement ministry. If we don't have a soundboard, I'm yelling even louder. 
and people out there in Facebook land couldn't hear me anyway. You're not just saying hi to people at the front door. It's the ministry of greeting. It's a spiritual task. You're not just watching the babies when we have babies again. We've got some. It's the ministry of child care. When we do it for God, it's a spiritual task. You're not just showing up to pull weeds. It's the ministry of pulling weeds. It's the ministry of picking up trash around the building. At home, it's the ministry of doing dishes. It's the ministry of doing laundry. It's the ministry of doing my homework. Everything I do for God is a spiritual task. And you see, we need to really believe that we are always in the presence of God and that anything we do in our lives, day in and day out, whether it's routine or mundane, it is still done in the presence of God. It's a spiritual work. So I thought about that. Two things came to mind. The first one was there's a, a little booklet. comes out of the 1600s. There was a man by the name of Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a cook in a monastery in France. And this little book called Practicing the Presence of God was a little book that came out of some conversations he had with a wounded soldier and also some letters he wrote to a friend. Brother Lawrence believed whether he was peeling potatoes or whether he was walking along the path and saw some straw that needed to be picked up and removed, that everything he did, he did in the presence of God. And therefore, whatever he did was important. But I think of another person. If you've been around here for a while, you would know the name of Harold. Harold Sorensen was a, a member of Pleasant Hill Community Church. Harold was a man that was a World War II veteran. He stood about this tall. He was in the Air Force, and he was part of a crew of a B-17 bomber, and his task was to get into this little glass-enclosed turret at the bottom of the plane. He was the underbelly gunner. Rarely did those survive because that would be the first thing that enemy fighters would try to shoot at. By the time Harold came to us, he was much older. His wife Dorothy had passed away and we went through a membership class and in that membership class we talk about ways to serve in the church and Harold raised his hand and he said, there's really not much I can do physically anymore. <laughs> but would it be okay if on Sunday mornings I just walked around the sanctuary and shook people's hands and said, I'm so glad to be worshiping Jesus with you today. Yes, a thousand times yes. What a spiritual ministry. Everything you and I do for God is a spiritual ministry. The seven men chosen were going to distribute food to widows. It's a spiritual task as they treated each one with importance and 
sending out one another to proclaim the gospel. It was a, that's what the apostles did. This is every bit as important as somebody else going to Timbuktu to present the gospel. The word of God is still going to spread. You and I may never reach the heights of leadership as former Secretary of State Colin Powell. In fact, you may never even get to be an officer in the PTA. But that doesn't let us off the hook. You see, you look back through these qualities of, of servant leadership, and they really just ought to be qualities for all of us. You may not see yourself as a leader, and that's okay. But I would tell you to take careful stock of who you count as a leader or leaders. I would tell you to take a close look at the qualities of their life because we tend to become like those who lead. And we need to all begin with the servant part of servant leadership, to serve those around us. And when we start serving those around us, our eyes are going to be open. We're going to be able to identify and address those issues that might be challenging a God-centered unity right within our own group. When we are focused on serving others, we're going to be more in tune with how God has made and gifted each one. And we can not only use our abilities for His glory, we can come alongside someone else and say, you know, I see this in you. I think this would be a great area. How can I help you excel in the way God has shaped you? We encourage others and we empower them to serve God as they are able. And when we grow in our own spiritual walk, when we grow in our maturity with God, we begin to see that everything we do for God is important. Every servant leader begins and continues as a servant. Because our ultimate servant leader was Jesus, who said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. May we, use an old book title and an old tennis term, may we each work to improve our serve every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this practical example in the book of Acts of servant leadership. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons that we can learn. Help us to learn those lessons, but not just learn them like kind of memorizing facts. Help us to see how we can truly be servants first and servant leaders as you desire in the practical, mundane, everyday stuff of life. And when we learn that, you may give us more responsibility when we're ready. We lean on you today, in Jesus' name, amen.